let's go inside under my skin you come around the other way a dream i have spent hello and welcome to another edition of act in context podcast my name is john delin your co-host here with the ever wonderful jennifer plum jennifer hey john how you doing I'm doing great. How are you? The semester's over. You ready yeah, for uh, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> ready for a real job? <laughs> oh, uh, getting there. Getting there. Ready for a real job. All right. All right. Um, since we last talked, you, you landed an internship uh, and uh, are excited. I don't think we've talked about that. Let's just mention it real quick. What are you doing? Uh, yeah, I will be moving to Seattle to start my internship at the VA Puget Sound up there. Mm-hmm. I'm very excited about that. So, mm-hmm. yeah, exciting. All right. Well, congratulations on that. Thanks. Yeah. And we've had we have a few episodes under our belt. We have an mm-hmm. introduction, we have the ever wonderful Stephen Hayes, and then we've done acceptance. Mhm. So now we're ready for the next big step, which is diffusion. Ooh, yes. <laughs> and we have with us today another, yet another very exciting uh, guest. His name is Russ Harris. Hello, Russ Harris. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> our pleasure. Um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are going to know who you are, but there are also going to be many more who don't. So let me give you a quick introduction. Is that okay, Russ? Yeah, that's sure. As long Our, as it's quick. All right, here it is. Russ Harris got his MD degree, his medical degree, and you're going to have to help me with the pronunciation, from the University of? Uh, Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Newcastle-upon-Tyne. That wasn't as hard as I thought. In the UK. And began his career as a general practitioner or primary care doctor. Over the years, he became interested in the psychological aspects of health and when he discovered ACT, he retrained as a therapist and learned ACT from Steve Hayes, Kelly Wilson, and Kirk Strassel. That is an amazing story, and I can't wait to ask you about it, but I have more bio. Since then, uh, he has been an active presenter at conferences and has become an internationally known ACT trainer. He's the author of several best-selling ACT books, including ACT Made Simple, a book for therapists, and The Happiness Trap, a book for clients. Russ Harris, welcome to Act in Context Podcast again. Thank you. All right. So I just I just am intrigued by that intro, and I don't know much about you. So why don't we begin by you telling us this crazy story of how you went from physician to therapist? Oh, well, um, basically, I was uh, I was working as a GP uh, or primary care doctor, and I, I just found out I was becoming increasingly interested in the psychological aspects of health and well-being. Uh, the consultations were getting longer and longer, and, uh, you know, in Australia, the kind of typical GP consultation goes for about 10 minutes if you're lucky, whereas mine were kind of going for more like 20, 25 minutes, and most <laughs> of that time, we were we were sort of talking about the emotional and psychological aspects and then we'd spend a couple of minutes at the end dealing with the prescription. Uh (laughs) And um, I just kind of started to think, also at the same time there was a a new branch of medicine that was becoming uh, more popular called psychoneuroimmunology, 
which investigates the relationship between the mind, the nervous system, and the immune system. And um, uh, these kind of, uh, uh, there's a lot of research showing the, uh, you know, that it's an artificial distinction trying to divide mind from body, that the two are intimately connected, as, of course, Eastern philosophy has told us for thousands of years. But this was very new in Western medicine. And so um, basically I just started uh, getting more and more interested in, in, in counseling and therapy and I started doing some short courses in counseling because I wanted to be able to uh, provide better, uh, you know, counseling to my, well, I, these days I call them clients, but back then I called them patients. Um, and uh, after a couple of years of that, I just started to think I was in the wrong profession. I, I really enjoyed the, the therapy and counseling side of things. So um over the space of a few years, I started uh, setting more and more of my working week aside just to do one-on-one -on -one counseling. Um, and uh, over a period of about seven or eight years, I got down to uh, where, this point where in, in the year 2000, I was just doing a half-day session once a month as a GP, and the rest of the time I was doing <laughs> counseling and therapy. That's but when you I know you're, you're, yeah, exactly, you're in a new field yeah. and it's working for you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was kind of fused with my conceptualized self, you know, I'm a GP and, and I'm a, a medical doctor, and if I let go of this, what am I? Because I'm not a psychiatrist, you know, I'm, I'm not a psychiatrist, I'm not a psychologist, what am I, you know? Am I, uh, but eventually, uh, October 2000, I finally let that go, and, and uh, so these days, um, yeah, I, I mean, I... I kind of divide my time between coaching um, and and therapy, although I don't really see a distinction between the two. But in in kind of business people in the corporate world, you you use the word coaching because you know the corporate world likes to pretend that no one there needs therapy. So, um, <laughs> uh, but it was kind of interesting because as um, as 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 I made that shift, my income went down and down and down and down. You know, as a as a coach or therapist, you earn much, much less than uh, uh, you do as a GP. Uh, uh -huh. So by, by 2000, my, uh, my income had plummeted to less than a third of what it had been as a, as a, as a full-time GP eight years earlier. Uh, but my uh, satisfaction and fulfillment had, uh, had massively kind of increased. Wow. I, I hadn't actually discovered ACT at that point, though. Uh, you know, I was kind of pri primarily... The main model I was using was traditional CBT, Aaron Beck style CBT, um, which was, uh, but I, I was always kind of interested in mindfulness. Um, I, before, back in the early 90s, I discovered the work of John Kabat-Zinn, the uh, mm -hmm. creator of mindfulness-based stress reduction. Right, right. Uh, a lot of interesting research about that and its effects on the immune system and so forth. Yeah. And so, you know, for years, I was trying to reconcile these two different approaches. There's a lot in traditional CBT that I really liked, all the behavioral activation stuff and all the stuff about being aware of your thoughts and so forth. But there were kind of bits missing, uh, you know, it, and I was very interested in Viktor Frankl's work uh, and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, this idea of finding meaning and purpose, which wasn't there in traditional CBT. And I was very interested in mindfulness right. stuff that... Um, largely learning about it, uh, you know, through meditation or through kind of Buddhist meditation groups, which just didn't really translate very well into the client base that I was working with. Mm 
Mm-hmm. So when I discovered Acts, uh, I only discovered Acts in 2003, but it was it was love at first sight. It was, ah, oh, thank you, there is a God. You know, this is amazing. <laughs> uh, and I just, uh, I was just blown away by it because it, it just, it had everything from kind of traditional CBT that, that, in my opinion, really worked well, all the behavioral stuff. It had the kind of meaning and purpose stuff, uh, you know, uh, in a very practical way. And it had the mindfulness stuff in a way that was so accessible without having to do meditation, which is, you know, I'm uh, obviously very appealing to many people that are not into meditation. Right. So, um, yeah, shortly after I discovered it, I flew off to do a... Uh, a summer institute in America and met the, the the gurus over there and it was like wow this is it this is it so what year did I you fly back. to what, what year did you fly to meet Steve uh, that actually wasn't until 2004 so I, I discovered that in late 2003 uh, read the book from the original app books like over and over still didn't understand RFT the relational brain theory stuff but kind of everything else in that book was pretty amazing um, so I first met the, the guys in 2004 at the, the Summer Institute in, uh, in Reno in Reno and, mm-hmm. yeah I was really amazed at how down to earth and pragmatic they all were and how open they were and uh, you know I I asked Steve Hayes at that that institute would you be okay if I wrote a a book about this Um, you know a a self-help book because at that point I don't don't think there were any self-help books at that point Um, and uh, and he said yeah sure go for it so um, I started uh, writing The Happiness Trap it took me a couple of years before it finally got into print Um, and uh, the Happiness Trap has been a, a phenomenal uh, success. It's kind of it's been translated into 22 different languages. At 22? Wow. Yeah, yeah. So uh, um, it's uh, and it just keeps on going. Uh, just in the last couple of weeks, we've had interest from Saudi Arabia and Turkey. So it's kind of wow. nice to know that it's getting into these, uh, you know, countries. Yeah, that's great. That's brilliant. Well, fantastic. Well, let's thank you for telling us your story. It's a it's a fascinating story. Um, and let's go ahead and dive into diffusion for the topic of today. Um, uh, so we, we've talked about acceptance, and that you know it's not it's not simple to implement, but it's certainly not a concept that people struggle to understand. Once we start talking about diffusion in ACT, we start using words that people don't intuitively even have a clue what they might mean, let alone understand what ACT means by them. So why don't you go ahead and start, uh, help us jump in feet first and tell us what in the heck diffusion means, understanding that our audience is people that are just maybe coming to psychology or ACT for the very first time and very well could be just a layperson wanting to learn more about ACT. What's diffusion and what is fusion? Sure. Well, look, if you think of two sheets of metal that are fused together, if you couldn't use the word fuse to describe those two sheets of metal, what, what words would you use? Stuck. Sealed. Melted. <laughs> okay. Stuck, sealed, melted, welded, joined, bonded, kind of all words that imply no separation. 
Uh, And so when we talk about being fused with your thoughts, what we mean is there's no separation. You're totally caught up in them, entangled in them, absorbed in them, lost in them. In this kind of state, your thoughts have a massive impact and influence over your behavior. Uh, By defusion, we mean you start to separate or detach or disentangle or unhook yourself from your thoughts. You start to get some, some distance or some space. Probably uh, a good way to get an idea of this, if, if you place your hands together in front of you uh, as if they're the pages of a book, are you doing that right now? Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. Yeah, kind of, so you've got your hands in front of you, just kind of place side by side as if they're the pages of a book. Now, ever so slowly, raise your hands up towards your face, closer and closer and closer, until they're covering your eyes. And so you can just kind of look out through the gaps between your fingers. All right, I got it. Now, mm-hmm. Okay, now this is what it's like to be fused with your thoughts. In, in, this, um, in this exercise, your hands represent your thoughts, so you're all caught up in them, totally absorbed in them. And notice how much you're missing out on. Look around the room like this, uh, the huge gaps in the information coming into you. You're missing out on a huge amount. Um, if you've lowered your hands, just put them back up again and just for a moment imagine what it would be like going around all day like this. Right. How difficult would it be to act effectively, to... Do the things that make your life work. How difficult would it be to cuddle a baby, hug a loved one, type in a computer, drive a car, you know, respond to some kind of difficult or challenging event going around like this be pretty hard. And so this is what we Mm -hmm. mean by fusion. You're all caught up in your thoughts. You're missing out on, on what's happening around you and you can't really act effectively or engage in what you're doing. Now, ever so slowly, lower your hands and just notice what happens as the space between you and your thoughts increases. Notice what happens to your view of the room. Notice how much easier it is, how much more information is coming in. Just kind of let your hands sit on your lap and uh, and notice now how much more easy it is to uh, engage in your experience. Notice, too, that your, your thoughts haven't disappeared. Your hands are still there. They're still sitting in your lap. Um, they haven't disappeared or gone away. Now, if there's something useful you can do with them, then you can use them. If not, you just kind of let them sit there until there is something useful you can do. And this is what we mean by defusion. We start to separate or detach or get some space from our thoughts. And it's not that we make them go away. It's just that we kinda, uh, we let them hang around and do their own thing without getting caught up in them. Hmm. Wow. That's a powerful uh experiential sort of it's it's a powerful experience to use the hands like that i almost felt like i was entering the room for the first time when i was lowering my hands like yeah I, yeah like i, I mean, almost wasn't most, in the room it's a very nice little exercise to kind of introduce fusion and defusion most people will get it very quickly from that but mm-hmm. it kind of one of the things i like about the end is that your, your hands are just left sitting there they yeah. haven't disappeared, and this is mm-hmm. often the case. When we, we can diffuse from painful and hurtful thoughts, and they may not actually disappear. And it, the you probably spoke about this in your last podcast. The whole ACT model rests on a concept called workability. Did you talk about this last time? Mm-hmm. Sure, a little bit, but, but don't let that hold you back. I need repetition oh, yeah. as much as everybody. <laughs> okay. So workability um, is uh, ask the question, is what you're doing working to give you a rich, full, and meaningful life? And that's the, the whole ACT model rests on that concept. And so what we're interested in, in, in when we respond to the thoughts that show up, we're interested in, not whether the thoughts are true or false, 
but do these thoughts, if you let these thoughts guide what you do with your arms and your legs, if you let these thoughts guide your actions, does that work to give you a ritual and meaningful life? Does it help you be the person you want to be, do the things you want to do? So we never kind of get into a debate uh, about whether these thoughts are true or false. It's all about is it workable to hold on to them, to let them kind of uh, uh, guide what you do. And so if, if a thought is, is workable, if it's helpful or useful, then let's use it to guide our actions. But if it's not, let's kind of just get some space from it, let it sit there, let it come and go, let it do its own thing uh, until a more helpful thought shows up. Mm-hmm. Okay. Go ahead, Yeah. John. I was just thinking as you were talking that um, I imagine that it might be difficult for, for, for a lot of clients or a lot of folks who might be doing this work on their own um, to recognize that their hands might be up in front of their face. So for sure. what, what kind of suggestions would you have for, for helping people sort of see whether or not they are um, being guided by their thoughts? Like what are, what are some examples of ways people might be directed by their thoughts because they're fused with them? Well, <laughs> that's a great question. Um, I, I think the, the first, you think there are kind of three stages of diffusion or, or, or three probably not stages, but categories of, of diffusion, uh, which we can remember as the three ends, noticing, naming, and neutralizing. Uh, Ooh, so that's kind good. Of, mm -hmm. uh, noticing your thoughts is probably the, the uh, well, it is actually it's the first step in all diffusion. In fact, noticing is the first step in all mindfulness. Uh, you know, in practicing acceptance, you begin by noticing the emotions that are showing up in your body. Mm -hmm. With the present moment, you notice what you can see, hear, touch, taste, and smell. In selfless context, you notice that you're noticing, that there's a part of you doing the noticing. And in diffusion, the first step is just kind of noticing your thoughts, notice what you're thinking. Uh, and so, um, in fact, one of the, the, the simplest for, for coaches and therapists listening to this podcast, one of the simplest diffusion techniques I know to use with your clients is just to say to them, can you notice what you're thinking right now? Or uh, can you notice what your mind is telling you right now? Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And so if you're wanting to, to kind of apply this to yourself, it, you, then you just pause for a moment and you notice or, or you ask, well, what, are, what is my mind telling me right now? Uh, just... Uh, uh, I, I guess if you're if you're wanting to do this yourself, the first thing you need to do is just kind of get that pause. Just push your feet into the floor, or uh, look around you. Where are you? What are you doing? And then just stop. Check in. Mm -hmm. What is my mind telling me? What what is guiding my action in this point? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So notice. Great. Notice. Notice. And 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 you see in in, in noticing your thoughts you immediately get a little bit of separation from them. When you're totally fused, you're not even aware that you're thinking. Uh, right, it's it, just sort of becomes reality. like the, the Almost like you're wearing glasses that are colored a different color or something. You don't yeah, even really well, notice. Well, yeah. Mm -hmm. The hands are over your face. Mm -hmm. You don't know that they're there. Okay. Mm -hmm. right. you know, uh, I often talk about wearing shit-colored goggles. You've got all these... Thoughts about how shit life is, and and uh, but you you don't even know that you're caught up in them. Is but mm -hmm. but looking through those goggles, everything looks kind of shitty. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, All right. So 
when the very first step is you start to notice what you're thinking, notice all of those thoughts, it's kind of like just moving those goggles a little bit forward on your face, just starting to get a little gap there. So it's just being aware that you have glasses on at all, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, yeah, the very first step is probably the trickiest step because when you're totally fused, you're not even aware that you're fused. So that the moment you even start to notice that you're fused or notice that you're all caught up in your thoughts, in that instant, a little bit of diffusion happens. Before we kind of go on with this, let me just kind of say that fusion is not bad. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it, it, uh, it's a normal human process, and uh, there are many parts of life where fusion is life-enhancing. For example, when I'm reading a, a novel, I want to be fused with the story. I want to be so absorbed right. in that story uh, as if it's as if that story is reality. Or the same thing when I'm watching a TV show. I want to be fused with the story. I don't want to be kind of just noticing that it's a bunch of actors uh, and some flickering <laughs> images on a TV screen. And the, and the right. classic, if there's, a, if, if there's a lion on the savannah running after you, you want to be fused with running away. <laughs> yeah, well, right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. You know, uh, so, um, uh, and, and there's other times that fusion's not, not particularly helpful, but it's not particularly harmful either. You know, the, the, there's probably, you know, uh, earlier this morning I was looking out of the window daydreaming. It wasn't particularly helpful, but it wasn't particularly harmful. Uh, we only target diffusion. Uh, we only target fusion in act when fusion gets in the way of living a rich, full, and meaningful life. Uh, right. So, um, uh, and usually that is fusion with kind of self-defeating or, or, or self-limiting uh, uh, beliefs and ideas. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and we can talk about there. Are, I mean, we could create an infinite number of different categories of fusion. Uh, for instance, if you've trained in traditional CBT, all of those 12 different types of dysfunctional thinking, you could say those are those are all different categories of fusion. Uh, or if you've trained in schema therapy, all those 35 different schemas, you could say those are all different categories of fusion. But if we want to keep it simple, the vast majority of problematic fusion kind of falls into six categories. Um, uh, uh, so we've got fusion with the past, kind of fusion with past-oriented cognition. Uh, mm. So this can include ruminating over old regrets and failures. This might include replaying old traumas and disappointments. This might be uh, manifest as resentment going over old grudges and grievances. Uh, it, it could show up as uh, analysis paralysis, you know, <laughs> overly analyzing why am I like this and why did this happen to me and why me? Um, so you kind of got fusion with the past, and then you've got fusion with the future. Fusion with future-oriented cognitions. Uh, the classic would be worrying, you know, predicting mm-hmm. the worst, catastrophizing. But it, it could be fantasizing. You know, my life will be wonderful when I find that perfect right, partner. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Did either of you find that perfect partner yet? Jen, Jen found it. Jen found it. Oh, right. oh, <laughs> oh thank you. you. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell um, him I, I said it was perfect. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so not a lot of time spent in the present because there's a lot of fusion with the past and fusion with the future. So those are two big categories. Um, then you get uh, fusion with the conceptualized self, which um, you'll you'll talk at in depth in another podcast. But kind of basically, the conceptualized self are all the beliefs and ideas I have about who I am. Uh, 
And, uh, you know, typically when people are depressed, for example, that conceptualized self is usually pretty negative and worthless. And so I'm, and- I'm a loser. I'm, I'm broken. I'm, an, I'm abused. I'm depressed. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I'm stupid. Course, you know, other, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and in fact, you know, um, uh, but, but people can also, uh, fusion with the conceptualized self also might be fusion with a, a role. You know, I am mm-hmm. an officer of the law. And, of course, that's going to create problems if suddenly you be- retire, for example, and you don't have that role anymore or mm-hmm. uh, if you become incapacitated and you can't do that. Because typically, you know, if we, if we go back to that example, I am an officer of the law and then I'm disabled and I can't do that. You may then get fusion with I am nothing. I'm worthless. I am nothing without my job. Mm-hmm. Uh, fusion with a conceptualized self can also include fusion with your body. You know, I am fat. I am ugly. Uh, it could include fusion with a diagnosis you know i am bipolar i am borderline i am diabetic uh and so uh you know if uh, it, it can be equally problematic to fuse with a really positive conceptualized self um you know i don't know if you have i'm uh, fabulous <laughs> exactly uh, everyone <laughs> loves <wonderful>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah, well, you know, like uh, this, many, many listeners may relate to having uh, frail elderly relatives that are fused with, I am strong, capable and independent, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the right. problems that creates or, or our prisons are full of people that were fused with, you know, uh, I'm, a, uh, I'm a fabulous driver, I can drive really well, even when I'm drunk, you know, yeah. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. so kind of. Fusion with a, or if you've ever worked with a, a colleague that was fused with, I do my job brilliantly and I know the best way to do it, you know. Right. Uh, these <laughs> kind of, so fusion with either a positive or negative conceptualized self can create problems. We wouldn't want to get rid of a conceptualized self, but we want to learn to hold it lightly. Right. Right. So, so, got- so increase flexibility because it sounds like what ties these things together is that they're all sort of inflexible patterns. Like we all might think, yeah. you know, on a daily basis, like, oh, I'm horrible or I'm great. But, you know, whether how, how tightly we hold to that or how much that sort of gets in our way would be the sort of inflexible part. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, if if, you, uh, if your mind's anything like my mind, those kind of self stories change like the wind, you know, mm-hmm. that, that I have some sessions and I come out of a session and I think, oh my God, I just do not know how to do this work. I should just <laughs> refer all my clients to, to someone who knows how to do this job properly. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but there are other sessions I come out and I go, oh, hey, that went pretty well. I, I can do this pretty well after all. This is, you know, and, mm-hmm. and it, we want to, don't want to get overly attached to either of those stories. So, you know, a very nice little diffusion technique um, that uh, is called thanking your mind. Mm. Uh, do you know that one? Uh-huh. Yeah. Tell us about it. Tell us about it. Yeah. So, well, thanking your mind, you just yeah, it's just kind of with a, a sense of humor, a sense of playfulness. Whatever your mind says to you, you kind of you treat your mind a bit like it's an annoying teenager. You know, teenagers will just kind of say anything to get a reaction. They don't care. They just want to get a reaction from you. I'll, I'll kill the dog. I'll kill myself. I'll I'll kill everybody on the planet. You know. Uh, and just kind of with a sense of humor, sense of playfulness. Oh, okay. Thanks for sharing. You know, see, mind says to you, I'm an idiot. Oh, okay. Um, uh, thanks, mind. Well, you can use that diffusion technique on me. You're still an idiot. Oh, thanks, mind. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> um, and it, it's kind of a, you know, talking uh, back to your mind with this kind of little playful technique often just helps you unhook from these thoughts, take them a bit less 
obviously get a bit less caught up in them. Mm-hmm. Not so arguing got, with them, right? Though, like not la- that's right. like telling yeah. them, yeah. like, "Oh, you're totally wrong. Like, you did a great there. You did a great session the other day. Like, more just sort of, okay, thanks, moving on." <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. You know, it's kind of um, the, the problem is when you start arguing with your thoughts, you actually end up more fused with them. Usually, you kind of get caught up in mm-hmm. this. Uh, um, you know the the. Uh, did you cover the chessboard metaphor last time? Well, before before we jump to that, I have a quick question. Okay. How do you thank your mind to 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 kind of leave lay aside a thought that may not be constructive using your mind? Because you're because you're <laughs> well, using your, your mind. mind to thank your mind, right? <laughs> Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the great thing about the mind. It, it can kind of do many things at once. You know, uh, I mean, it, it, it's there's so many different voices in there and so many different parts in there. I I asked one of my clients, uh, are, are you familiar with this concept of the inner critic? And she said, yeah, I've got an inner committee. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, uh, in fact, we're, we're often using the mind to diffuse the very thoughts that our mind is generating and encouraging us to fuse with. Tricky, <laughs> so, slippery uh, slope, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's kind of, you know, the mind can do multiple things at once. It's right. kind of, and, and in fact, it always does. There's kind of mm-hmm. multiple processes going on within the mind at any one time. Okay, um, gotcha. Uh, actually, I just realized we only we only covered three of the six big types of. Yes. Let's keep going. Shall we go through? Yeah, yeah, I didn't so mean to cut go. off the chessboard. Should we come back to the chessboard, or did you want to touch on it real quick? No, no, and... we'll come back to it. We'll come. We'll come back to okay, it. Okay. Um, so the kind of the, the so you got fusion with the past, fusion with the future, fusion with the conceptualized self, and then the, the the three other big categories of fusion with reasons, rules, and judgments. Now, reasons is a big one. Um, the, the humans are brilliant at reason giving, giving reasons for why we can't change, shouldn't change, shouldn't have to change. Uh, like, what what are some of the reasons that that you folks give for why you can't do or why you won't do really important things in your life? What kind of reasons do you give? Oh, usually for me, it's things like, well, I've never been able to do that before, so uh, why should I be able to do that now? Or I'm like, not qualified. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I'm not qualified, or I'm just not able to do that. Um, I wouldn't got, be as good as anyone else. I've got, yeah, i got a family. I can't do all that and have a family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. too hard, or it's confusing. or Way too complex. Do you, ever get, do you get this one, uh, too busy, don't Oh time. yeah, way too busy. Mm-hmm. That's an yeah. easy one, right? It's an easy way out. You just be like, oh, <laughs> I'm too tired. Uh huh. Too tired. I'm too tired. It might go wrong. I don't have what it takes. You know. So, so like we can all give zillions of reasons uh, to why we can't change, shouldn't change, or shouldn't even have to change. And and the more kind of the more the change we're facing is likely to pull us out of the comfort zone, uh, the more discomfort arises and the more our mind goes into reason-giving mode, trying to come up with reasons why we can't do it, shouldn't do it, or shouldn't have to do it. And that's completely natural, completely normal. We all do it. Um, but the, if we fuse with those reasons, they become physical barriers. They, in effect, they stop us from making the changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and... And obviously, uh, it, it, uh, these these different categories of fusion all interlink. So, for example, fu- the conceptualized self you're fused with then often starts to function as a reason 
to not change. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm depressed and therefore I can't do it because I'm mm-hmm. depressed. Yep. I'm too anxious and so right. I can't do it because I feel too anxious. So you've got reasons. Then you've got rules. Now, uh, it's really good to have rules to live your life by. Uh, like we'd be in trouble without rules. We have to agree which side of the road we're going to drive on <laughs> and what, a, you know. Exactly. What, what, what the different wires in a plug mean, uh, the different colors of those wires and, and rules about social conventions and saying please and thank you and so forth. We'd, you know, we, we wouldn't be able to live in large groups if we didn't have rules. Um, but if you start fusing with the rules that your mind gives you on how to live your life and how to behave, then they become rigid and inflexible. Uh, and rigid inflexible rules can often be recognized by words like should, have to, must, ought. Mm-hmm. Um, have you guys heard of uh, oh, yeah. Karen Horney? No. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. one, of, uh, one of Freud's disciples, correct? Oh, I, I didn't know that. Well, oh, wait, maybe not. But, maybe uh, not. I, uh, I don't know if oh. you're speaking about a different person, but she was oh, uh, one of the early – a person named that was one of the early uh, neo-Freudians. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, well, I didn't know that, but, but Karen <laughs> Horney, it may be the same person, it may not, but a famous psychologist in the 40s who coined the phrase, the tyranny of the shoulds. That, that's um, her, yeah. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's her, huh? Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah. there you go. That's something new every day. <laughs> um, in that, unless you're in a coma, I guess. Um, so, she, um, so she coined this phrase, tyranny of the shoulds, you know, and this, this kind of life being lived by these kind of, uh, you know, rules of right and wrong and should and have to and must. And then Albert Ellis, uh, later in the 60s, coined the phrase masturbation. You know, I, uh, <laughs> uh, I, you know, I, I must do this, I must do that, I mustn't be this way, you know. And, and uh, you know, if you fuse with these rules, uh, I should, other people should, the world should or shouldn't be like this, it just pulls you into a struggle. Right. Uh, so you can identify rules by, by those words should, have to, must, or often also by words like right, wrong, good, bad, fair, unfair, often also by words like because, you know, um, you know or, or uh, until, you know, I uh-huh. can't do this until that happens or I won't do this because of that, you know, uh, uh, and, and you can see how this crosses over into reason giving. Uh, mm-hmm. I can't go to the party because I feel anxious. And I must not feel anxious, uh, you know. So, um, so you've got reasons, you've got rules, and then the the last category, and probably the biggest category, is judgments. As soon as we fuse with a, a negative judgment about anyone or anything, whatever is on the other side of that judgment, we get into a fight or a battle or a struggle with. Mm. Uh, so you can kind of see the the fusion with the concept thyself is really fusion with judgments a lot of it is fusion with judgments about yourself not all of it but a lot of it uh, uh, you may see infusion with the past if you fuse with judgments that the past is awful or fuse with judgments about the future that the you know the, my life I have no future or it's all doom and gloom you may mm-hmm. fuse with judgments about the world it life sucks uh, it's all bleak fusion with judgments about your other per- you know my husband's a bastard my wife is a bitch uh, fusion with judgments about your own feelings this feeling is awful I can't stand it I have to get rid of it uh, as soon as you kind of start fusing with these judgments you you, you get into a, a struggle with whatever's on the other end so true and false good and, good and bad good and evil those all count yeah mm-hmm. all of that stuff yeah and so it's kind of so 
as I say, we could create infinite number of different categories of fusion, but if you just keep those six in your mind, kind of past, future, self, reasons, rules, and judgments, that's a lot of what uh, the the problems are that are created through fusion. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So it's not, I just want to kind of reiterate at this point, the thoughts themselves are not the problem. Uh, from an app perspective, there is no problem whatsoever with the content of the thoughts. It's the fusion with the thoughts that's the problem. Mm. So in, in traditional CBT textbooks, they often quote Shakespeare, you know, there is nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. The act stance would be quite different to that. Act would kind of say that, Thinking doesn't make anything good or bad, but fusion with your thinking can create problems. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Yeah, that's a nice distinction, you know, because there is a lot of similarity between sort of traditional CBT um, and, and ACT. But that may be one place where it differs, the, the issue of the, the content itself. You mentioned earlier, um, you know, like the schemas or, or the different sort of categories of problematic thinking. Uh, some forms of traditional CBT will actually take those categories and try to help people change them, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. So in, in, tra- in traditional kind of Aaron Beck style CBT, you'd, mm-hmm. you'd then, you'd notice, you know, the, the, the first stage might be kind of noticing the thought that shows up, which would be the same in both ACT and CBT. The second stage might be then in, in traditional CBT is categorizing it. Well, here's black and white thinking or here's catastrophizing or here's uh, kind of shooting or overgeneralizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, that would also be consistent with a category of diffusion called naming. Naming, we were talking before about the three ends, noticing, naming and neutralizing. Naming just means kind of naming the process of thinking. The, the most generic form of naming is just to say to yourself, thinking, or, oh, there's my mind in action. But you could kind of get more specific, oh, well, here's the not good enough story, or mm, here's my mind mm-hmm. shooting on me, or, ah, oh, here's catastrophizing. Um, where act and traditional CBT would differ is that kind of uh, traditional CBT, once you've kind of noticed and named those thoughts, you would then go on to challenge and dispute them and look for evidence for true or false and try and replace them with more functional thoughts, whereas um, in ACT, we wouldn't do that. We would just kind of uh, let them come and go and do their own thing. We wouldn't mm-hmm. want to get into a debate with them uh, because um, that kind of debate with them actually ends up often kind of, well, often it doesn't kind of really work, but it just kind of pulls us more into our minds. We get caught up in an internal debate inside our heads very uh, easily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Another way of teasing this distinction is kind of think about, have you ever had the experience of uh, doing some sort of activity and you were really engaged in what you're doing uh, and there was a radio playing in the background right. uh, and, oh, yeah. and yep. you were so absorbed in what you were doing, you hardly even knew the radio was there Yep. and, mm-hmm. then, and then suddenly your favorite song came on the radio and suddenly you're really aware of the radio, you're singing along with the song and and then... And then the song changed and the radio just faded into the background again. Have you had that experience? Mm-hmm. Yeah, or like an announcer at a, at a sporting event, you may just totally tune them out for a long time and then all of a sudden pay attention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this is kind of what we're learning to do with our own thoughts uh, in ACT. You know, if, if our mind is kind of broadcasting something useful, uh, some thoughts that are going to kind of help us be the person we want to be and do the things we want to do, then we'll kind of use those. But uh, a lot of the thoughts that our minds generated uh, are not particularly helpful or useful there. Uh, I might, if we've got time, we can talk about how the mind has actually evolved to think negatively. And so it's mm. a bit like 
radio doom and gloom not all the time but there's a lot of doom and gloom broadcast on that kind of radio mind uh yeah. and uh so can we learn to just let it play on in the background and kind of tune in when it's telling us something useful and the rest of the time just let it play on while we engage in life um now this is very different to ignoring a radio have you ever tried to not hear a radio yes because I get songs stuck in my head, and I don't want particular right. songs to get stuck in my head. Okay. So I'm like, I can't listen to that. Uh-huh. Uh, so it doesn't work very you well. Ignore, uh, uh, you know, and if you try try to ignore or not hear a radio or a burglar alarm or a car alarm, it just gets louder and more irritating, mm-hmm. right? Or a loud voice in a restaurant. The more you try not to hear it, the louder That's it gets. That's the most so it's dominating the my – yeah, exactly. It just dominates yeah. my experience. Yeah. And, it, and it's also very different to bringing in a second radio, radio logical and rational, and trying to drown out radio doom and gloom. It's very hard to focus on what you're doing while you've got two radios playing two different channels, right? Yes, that's even so, harder. Yeah, so the kind of the, C, the traditional CBT approach or, you know, or a positive thinking approach would be let's bring in radio logical rational in CBT or let's bring in radio positive in a positive thinking approach and see if we could drown out radio doom and gloom. Well, that just kind of, you know, that's very different from what we're doing in ACT. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So we've got the six different kinds of fusion um, and we're, we're looking at sort of the function of of thinking basically rather than the content so in other words are we getting stuck with the thoughts or are we just letting them play on in the background and continuing to do the things we care about so that's sort of the distinction right like is it getting in your way or you know is it useful is it getting in your way um that's sort of the distinction people are, are doing when they're starting to notice their thinking patterns Absolutely. Uh, so, um, you know, I, I don't know if at this point it might be worth just doing some kind of experiential exercises. To, sure. Uh, sure. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, okay. So um, what I may do then is I'll get the le- listeners to bring up some version of the I'm not good enough story. Um, you know, for the I'm not good enough story starts in childhood for most people. Some some people it's a little bit later in life. Um just wondering with you guys, when, what's the early you can remember your minds telling you uh, some version of the I'm not good enough story? Oh, wow. Jen? For me, I think it was probably around third grade. Okay. So I was about and, eight years old or so. Yeah. And what yeah, was that I'm going to say second or third grade. Oh, go ahead, Jen. Yeah. Ooh, uh, self-disclose. You get to self-disclose. <laughs> I remember, <laughs> gosh, I remember vividly uh, – sort of a moment when I, I realized that maybe I wasn't the same as everybody else and that that was bad. Uh, I remember mm-hmm. standing in the playground. We used to line up for our homerooms um, to go back into our, to our homerooms outside on the playground. And I remember being in line and looking at this like vast number of lines of kids and looking around and going, my clothes are terrible and I don't look like that. And weird I don't have the same whatever I can't believe like I am not the same as these people and I'm worse I'm somehow broken or damaged or you know I'm wearing hand-me-down clothes or what you know whatever sort of was going on in my mind I just remember vividly thinking that I was somehow not okay I know isn't that sad you know my adult self feels terrible about that but I remember (laughs) very very clearly yeah we love you John 
you know, I actually, I actually have some of those same memories, but I'll just say that when I was in third grade, apparently I was talking and get out of, getting out of my chair so much in elementary school that my teacher took a magic marker, a permanent magic marker, and drew the letter J in my seat, <clears throat> picked up the chair, showed it to the whole class, and said, John, this is your chair with the J in it. Sit in it. And that chair remained in the <laughs> elementary school <clears throat> for the rest of the time that I was in school. <laughs> All right, then. <laughs> As a constant reminder that I clearly had a problem behaving. Wow. So wow. that'd be mine. So, yeah. so kind of like most people, you know, these sorts of ideas about being a start pretty young in life. And um, uh, and they, they don't go away. They just kind of get elaborated into more and more more complex forms. Um, and, uh, you know, when I meet a client for the first time, one of the first questions I ask usually in the, in the first few minutes of the interview is, if I could listen into your mind, uh, when it's beating you up or telling you, you know, what's not good enough about you or your life or the way you're handling things, what are some of the, the nastiest or most hurtful or most provocative, uh, most judgmental things I would hear your mind saying to you when it's getting stuck into you? Um, and um, to the coaches and therapists listening to this, just kind of note the diffusion inherent in that sort of question. In that sort of questioning, I'm inviting you to kind of separate from your mind and listen into it and uh, kind of uh, get, you know, it's quite different than asking you about how you're thinking. Uh, I'm asking you about, uh, I'm talking in a metaphorical way as if you could listen into your own mind when it's beating you up. Um, now, if you could listen into my mind when it's beating me up, here is what you would here. You, you wouldn't hear all of this on the same day, but if you tuned in over a six-month period, sooner or later you'd hear all of the following versions of the I'm Not Good Enough story. And um, I, I invite listeners, as I kind of share this with you, just see if, if your mind has something similar to this. Maybe not identical, but pretty similar. So here's what you'd uh, hear. Here's kind of most of them, I think. Um, uh, I'm fat. Uh, I'm ugly. I'm old. I'm boring, I'm not smart enough, uh, I'm an underachiever, I'm incompetent, I'm a, a lousy husband, I'm selfish, I'm uh, not a good enough father, I'm uh, lazy, I'm yep. workaholic, yep. <laughs> I'm, uh, um, yep. I'm, uh, what else, I'm too judgmental, um, I think that'll do. That's mm -hmm. pretty close. So, that's yeah, actually no, pretty that's close. <laughs> I don't Many of the same uh, for me. I yep. don't drink, Russ, actually. Yeah. I don't drink, so. <laughs> and so, you know, I kind of share that with um, uh, my, you know, m most weeks I'm running workshops for people of, you know, group sizes of 50 to 100 people. And I always ask, you know, can I get a hands, hands up if you have at least half of those stories? And virtually every hand in the room goes up, you know, and and uh, and so it's kind of a light bulb moment. You know, these are, are, are rooms full of psychologists and other health professionals. And we're all walking around with multiple versions of the I'm not good enough story. Um, and no one's talking about it. You're not allowed to mm -hmm. talk about it, right? Exactly. Like in a, in a, it's a big secret. Uh, yeah. It is a big secret. I think in a normal social context, not therapy or coaching, but kind of normal social context, when a child, a partner, a parent, a friend, a loved one, somebody you really care about, 
starts telling you the I'm not good enough story. You know, I'm too fat, I'm too old, I can't cope, I'm not enough of this, I'm too much of that. What is your natural instinctive response? Oh, no, you're not. <laughs> you're, you're just fine. <laughs> I love you. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we try and talk them out of it, mm-hmm. look at the evidence. Uh, what about mm-hmm. the evidence to prove mm-hmm. it's not wrong? You know, uh, uh, or like the, you know, the entirely, or like the Stuart Smalley version of the United States of you're good enough and you're smart enough and gosh darn it, people, people like people me. like me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And kind of the positive affirmation stuff and all that kind of thing. And, and, and because this is the normal response you get growing up, you you grow up thinking that you're the only person who has this story. Uh, no one else has it. Uh, there must be a way to get rid of it. Other people have managed to get rid of it. Mm. There is something wrong with you. Um, so, uh, you know, it's highly unlikely when you start telling a, a loved one, oh, I'm not good enough, I'm not this, I'm not that. It's highly unlikely that they say, hey, there's the I'm not good enough story. <laughs> Do you <laughs> Do you know yours is remarkably similar to mine? Yeah, you know, kind of some of the details may be a little bit different, but it's basically the same story. Tell me, is this kind of, is this the, the latest version? Is this like a sequel or a prequel? Uh, <laughs> you're, totally, um, you're totally absorbed in it. You're just skim reading right now, you know, yeah, you're yeah. Kind of editing it a bit, working on a new chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, uh, unless your loved one is an act therapist, you're not likely to get that response. Um, <laughs> yep. And so we kind of, and it's it's the best kept secret in the planet. Like I, I don't know. I, I'm assuming America's pretty to Australia. If someone in, in in America says, "How are you?" What do you have to say? Fine. Great. Great. What's the most negative you're allowed to be? What do you? Yeah, been yeah. I I go for hanging in there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Doing okay. Uh, yeah. Go. Like in Australia, the, the kind of the, the, it's the same thing. If someone says, "How are you?" Got to say, "Oh, good, thanks." Yeah. Uh, the, the most negative you're allowed to say is "not bad." Okay. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, or you could say, "Get in there, get in there." <laughs> yeah. That's about it. I mean, what happens if you say, "Oh, I'm feeling like the world's biggest loser, and I'm thinking about killing myself"? People just don't know what to do with that. <laughs> yeah. Have a nice day. See you later. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 Good luck with that. You kind of keep walking. You're not allowed. <laughs> yeah. You're not allowed to talk about it. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, here's the thing: we're all walking around with multiple versions of this story, and uh, you know, it's kind of nice at, at these workshops to say, if if to all these health professionals, if you haven't gotten rid of all your not good enough stories, what are you doing trying to help your clients get rid of theirs? Isn't that kind of a bit crazy? Let's learn a new way of responding to the I'm not good enough story. There's no way to to stop it from showing up. Um, but what we can do is learn a, a, a new way of responding to it so that when it does show up, it has much less impact and influence on us. It doesn't hold us around or hold us back. It's, it's more like water off a duck's back. Yep. To sort of uh, roll off. And, yeah. 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 And this is kind of a, a, a good way of uh, kind of uh, opening people to this this concept because – you know, one of the things that, that uh, like in my traditional CBT days, uh, I would have clients say, uh, you know, I, I'm unworthy. And I would try and dispute and challenge that and look for the evidence to help this client see that they are worthy and they are a worthwhile human being. And that's kind of really hard work. And it actually doesn't really work for most people. Uh, if you look at, um, you know, the, all the empirically supported 
treatments for uh, in in Western psychology. There's there's not one empirically supported model that eliminates negative core beliefs. There's not one, mm-hmm. um, but there's lots of um, there's lots of models that help you change your relationship with negative core beliefs, so they have less impact and less influence over you. And that's what we're aiming to do through diffusion, basically. So can I, can I ask uh, a devil's advocate question? Sure. What I'm hearing you say is don't get too excited about stuff, don't be too optimistic about stuff, but don't get too down about stuff. And what I just interp- interpret that to mean in my feeble, simple brain is sort of just kind of be be dead, just be emotionally vacuous, just don't get excited about anything and just kind of maintain this level numbness and indifference. Now, I know I'm, that's not what you're saying, but that's kind of the implications I'm gathering from, from what you've said so far oh. in my cinema. Oh, right. Okay, okay. So I know you're just playing devil's advocate. No, I'm not saying that at all. You know, get really excited and passionate. Have a magnificent obsession, kind of. You know, uh, you know, a big part of act is clarifying your values and getting what's touched with what's really important, what really matters to you, and then committed action, pursuing that stuff, and contact with the present moment, engaging fully in what you're doing. And we expect if you embrace this model, that life will be much more rewarding and fulfilling. And there's lots of room for excitement excitement and passion and uh, lots of that. What we're uh, saying here, though, is kind of be wary of kind of fusing with stuff that's going to hold you back or make life worse. That's all. So uh, Mm. it's kind of, here's the thing, I don't need to fuse with I am fantastic, I am wonderful, I am the greatest in order to pursue uh, kind of exciting, meaningful activities in life. I can pursue and engage in stuff that I'm excited about, passionate about, without having to get caught up in my conceptualized self. You Um, know, just to add to that, one thing that, um, uh, one sort of common difficulty that I I think I I run into when I do this work is um, that very idea of um, acting regardless of what your thoughts are doing, as opposed to sort of acting the opposite of what the thoughts are, you know, because that can be, if it's, if you have a lot of negative self stories going on the not, I'm not good enough story, it can seem like you're, you're behaving like I can do this just to prove somehow that I'm, you know, good enough, you know, Um, but you can behave even if you have the story that shows up that I'm fantastic. It's sort of irrelevant to the behavior that you care about, right? Um, And I think that's something that I I get stuck with sometimes. It's hard to to realize that there's more behavior that can be directed by like what we care about as opposed to um, whether or not I'm thinking that I'm great or bad. Yeah, so Kate, we basically want our behavior to be doing what's meaningful and what matters to me rather than trying to disprove the thoughts in my head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and uh, and that's kind of an important distinction. Uh, it, it, it's um, uh, basically the um, – I often say to Patrick, let's just suppose you could in some way be magically present at your funeral. Would you love – and you could read the minds of your loved ones, 
what would you kind of love to hear your, your loved ones thinking about you? Would you would you love to hear something like, you know, she was really there for me. She cared about me. She was kind and compassionate. And I knew she really, uh, you know, she always went that extra mile for me. Um, or would you prefer them to be thinking something like this? Uh, she had a really high opinion of herself. She uh, she always thought positively about herself, you know, which is most important. Mm. Um, and mm-hmm. it, it's kind of uh, let's make the focus on, on, on living the way we want to live and behaving the way we want to behave and doing the things that are important rather than trying to get the right story in my head about who I am. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and there's a nice paradox as we kind of shift the emphasis from trying to rewrite the story in my head and boost myself up through positive thinking and and as we instead put the emphasis on clarifying my values and taking action like the person I want to be and living in the present moment uh, and just kind of letting my thoughts do their own thing uh, quite often over time as I start doing that uh, I find actually a lot more um, kind of pleasant thoughts showing up in my uh, conceptualized self um, as I start to recognize I am being true to myself and doing what matters Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it's kind of that's not the outcome we're aiming for but it's a nice bonus yeah yep gotcha. yep okay makes sense so did I deal with the, the devil's advocate there uh, adequately <laughs> yeah I, I can imagine that it's possible to like do a thorough values assessment decide that this these are the goals these, this is the committed action that you want to pursue and you could even become fused with your goals and committed action. Is that possible? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the big things is very often when people make a commitment, the first thought that pops into their head uh, is, oh, no, now I have to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and if the moment you fuse with that thought, you've just kind of fused with a rigid rule. You know, there's a have to in there. There's a should. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, Steve Hayes has a nice saying about values. He says a uh, kind of, Pursue them vigorously, but hold them lightly. Um, values are thoughts, and if you fuse with them, and they soon become rigid and inflexible. They soon turn into rigid rules and a chain around your neck. So when you're in touch with your values, uh, one of the indicators you're kind of in touch with your values is a sense of vitality and a sense of kind of freedom, uh, liberation. There's like an infinite number of different ways that I can act on this value. Suppose one of your values is to be loving. Well, there's so many different ways that you can kind of be loving or, or suppose your value is, is caring or respecting. There's many, many different ways that you can uh, act on those values. Uh, but if you start kind of uh, if there's a sense of closing down burden, obligation, then you're you've moved from uh, value to kind of fusion with a rule. I have to do it. I should do it. Mm-hmm. Obligation, burden mm-hmm. uh, like, I, you know, thou shalt not kill, for example, is not a value. That's a rule. It's actually a commandment, isn't it? Thou shalt yep. not right. kill. Right. Yep. Uh, uh, whereas the values underlying thou shalt not kill are caring and respecting, caring for human life, respecting human life. And there's a zillion and one different ways that you can act on those values. So it's an interesting dance, though, because, you know, I'm listening to you and I'm thinking, gosh, you know, there are so many times when, you know, I I definitely would say that I have as a value being a loving, caring, supportive partner, friend, 
therapist, etc. Um, and I notice at times when things will come up like, oh, I have to take out the trash because he did it last time and it's my turn or, oh, mm. I can't believe that I, I forgot to call this person when they were sick and I can't believe I did, I should have done that, uh, you know, mm. and, and how easy that sort of happens, like using my values to beat myself up. Um, yeah, exactly. You know, so it, it's it's really a, a a tough line. It takes a lot of practice, I think, to notice when we slide back into that <laughs> that sort of yeah. rule govern sort of like oh have to, even though it's very much something I care about. Yeah, well, look, you know that that stuff is going to keep showing up, and uh, it, it's important that we don't fuse with perfectionism. Uh, mm. You know, the, mm-hmm. it's kind of like. Uh, the tiniest How little. How did you read my uh, mind? Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> the tiniest, the tiniest little bit of this stuff makes a difference. If you just spend one minute a week, you know, uh, doing mindfulness, that's a minute well spent. Um, uh, and uh, you know what, what's kind of very interesting for me is that that research on, on act as a brief intervention and finding that even just kind of. Uh, very small brief interventions along these lines can make a big difference. We don't have to start monitoring every single thought that pops into our head and uh, that, that that would kind of really suck the vitality out of us. Mm-hmm. So we want to notice our own um, our own perfectionism and uh, how our mind, you know, it's very hard to keep your mind pleased. It, it, it'll Seriously. Things. <laughs> it finds lots of ways of criticizing me no matter what yeah. I do. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but can we go, oh, okay, here's my mind criticizing me again. Oh, here's my mind getting stuck into me for not doing that properly. You know, uh-huh. yeah. yeah. Thanks, mind. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I have a, I have so a, qu- oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Russ. Oh, you can see, so kind of thanking your mind, you know, is is another part of naming, really. So it can, if noticing, uh, noticing the thoughts, but once we start saying, oh, thanks, mind, or here's my mind in action, now we're starting to name it, you know, and that kind of just adds that second degree of diffusion. Gotcha. Um, what I was going to do experientially was kind of move on to the, the third stage, kind of neutralizing thoughts by mm-hmm. kind of moving them into a, a new context where we can clearly see them as words and pictures. Let's do it. Yep. Okay. So, um, so what I, I may, um, so I'll, I'll get the listeners then to uh, bring to mind some version of the "I'm not good enough" story and put it into a short sentence: "I, I am X or I'm not Y enough." And, and really go for the most dramatic, hurtful, provocative version of the story. So not something like this, uh, you know, in some social situations, I am a bit on the anxious side. That's not what I'm looking for. You know. uh, I'm More looking punchy, for, right? <laughs> and I'm looking for a, a fairly harsh global judgment. I'm too anxious or, you know, uh, you know, I'm not smart enough or I'm incompetent or I'm fat or I'm, I'm not this or I'm too much of that. Kind of mm-hmm. keep it short and punchy. Um, and what I'll get uh, get you to do is, um, first of all, I'm going to get you to fuse with it for about 15 seconds. I'll get you to close your eyes, buy into the thought, believe it as much as you possibly can. Whatever you do, do not dispute it or challenge it. I want you to have the experience of fusion. Uh, and then I'm going to take you through some simple defusion techniques so you can kind of have a sense of, uh, of, of what it's like to um, separate from it. You okay with that? Yeah, Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So I'll, uh, uh, it's more powerful if you close your eyes, not essential. Um, uh, Obviously, if you're driving a car, I wouldn't recommend that right now. 
Um, <laughs> so, or operating heavy machinery. Or doing brain surgery. <laughs> then, uh, don't, okay. So, uh, okay, so I invite listeners, uh, close your eyes and bring to mind a nasty negative self-judgment and buy into it. Believe it as much as you possibly can. I'm fat, I'm incompetent, something like that. Buy into it, believe it. Now I'll get you to replay that thought in your head with a little phrase in front. The phrase is, I am having the thought that. So I am having the thought that I'm incompetent. Now I'll get you to uh, replay it one more time. The phrase is a little bit longer. I notice I'm having the thought that. I notice I'm having the thought that I'm incompetent. Okay, so how did you go? Wow. Yep. It's like creating space. Mm-hmm. You get a sense of space or distance? Or? Much less emotion. Much less emotion. Mm-hmm. It's it's in, you know that's one of the things that uh, certainly coaches and therapists and, and uh, clients too need to watch out for. It's easy to get the the wrong idea about diffusion because um, as you start diffusing from these thoughts, often their emotional intensity uh, reduces significantly, and so then you can get the idea: ah, diffusion. This is there. The way we to come. go. It's the secret that I've been looking for. <laughs> hey, if I diffuse from these thoughts, that'll make all my painful feelings go away. Uh-huh. You know, uh, and um, uh, that's not the point of diffusion. And if you start using diffusion for that, you'll soon uh, be disappointed because uh, it just doesn't work that way. For for example, you know, our, our feelings are under multiple sources of uh, stimuli at any one time. Uh, your thoughts are only. You know, one of the myths out there is that your thoughts create your feelings. Your thoughts certainly influence your feelings. But, for example, if a snake appeared right now in front of you, you'd have a, a fight-or-flight response faster than your cerebral cortex could even generate a thought about it. Mm-hmm. Just from the way your brain is hardwired, the information would get, reach your amygdala uh, and trigger a fight-or-flight response before it reached your cerebral cortex. So diffusing from thoughts isn't necessarily going to have that sort of impact on your emotions. But it, uh, the thing is, diffusion is itself an acceptance technique, which we're aiming to dif- diffuse our thoughts, kind of see them for what they are and allow them to be as they are and to kind of let them come and go in their own good time without getting into any fight or struggle. So if we start mm-hmm. using diffusion to try to control our emotions, we'll soon be disappointed. And that's yeah. okay. You know, if you're a coach or therapist, your, your client will come back and they'll say, uh, I did that diffusion technique and it didn't work. And then you say, what do you mean it didn't work? And they say, well, I was still feeling anxious or I still felt miserable. And then you say, well, it, it's not a way to control their emo- your emotions. Uh, and then you take them through that little exercise with your hands again. This is the point of diffusion. And I'll just get listeners to do this again. Just kind of put your hands together in front of you like the pages of a book. Uh, uh, these are your thoughts. Ever so slowly bring them up towards your face till they're covering your eyes. When you've got them covering your eyes, look around the room, you're missing out, you're cut off, you're disconnected. It's very difficult to act effectively, to respond to life's challenges or to engage in what you're doing. 
Now, ever so slowly lower your hands. Notice what happens as the space between you and your thoughts increases. Your view of the room is richer. You can engage more clearly. You can take effective action and engage in what you're doing. So this is the purpose of diffusion. Mm -hmm. Got it. So what what we're going to do next is then do some neutralization techniques. So um, basically what this means is uh, we're going to take a thought and put it into a new context where we can see it for what it is. We can uh, Thoughts are basically words and pictures, but when we fuse with them, we don't realize that. Uh, so if we can kind of take a thought and put it into a new context where we can clearly see it as a picture or clearly hear it uh, as a sound, then that helps us kind of... Uh, uh, well, it helps us see it for what it is. It, it's it's words and pictures um, rather than what it uh, 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 that kind of reduces its impact and influence over us and mm-hmm. helps us kind of uh, uh, respond to it differently. Mm-hmm. So what I, I invite listeners to do is again kind of fuse with a, a nasty negative self judgment. They can use the same one um, or they can uh, use a different one. I'm sure there's there's no shortage. Uh, if anyone's uh, struggling to come up with a negative self-judgment, just think about this. When, What does your mind say to you when you catch sight of yourself naked in the mirror? Does it go, oh, look at that amazing body. Uh, yeah. No. Not for me. It. it goes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. How many days did you go to the gym this week? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, or, um, uh, you know, if you're a coach or therapist, think about what does your mind say to you after a session where everything you tried failed miserably and uh, didn't uh, have any impact whatsoever? Oh, yeah. Just start so, over. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> or if you're a parent, think about what your mind says to you after a few minutes later after you just lost it with your kids and kind of yelled and bulled them out, as your mind say to you about you as a parent. So, um I get you to fuse with another kind of harsh self-judgment and then I'm going to go through a bunch of kind of neutralization techniques and uh, listeners may or may not be able to do these. I invite you to give it a go and just kind of see what happens. Before we do this, I just want to kind of, uh, I'm not sure if in these podcasts you've touched on the definition of mindfulness. Uh, There are many different definitions. Uh, I define mindfulness basically as paying attention with openness, curiosity, and flexibility. So uh, paying attention uh, is kind of at the core of mindfulness, but it's not just paying attention. Paying attention with an attitude of openness. I'm open to what I notice. I may not like it or want it, but I'm not turning away from it, nor am I fighting with it. I'm open to it. And very importantly, I'm curious about it. I'm curious, even if it's something unpleasant, I'm curious about what it is. And it's flexible attention. At times it's a very narrow focus. At times it's a very broad focus. At times it's internally directed to to my thoughts and feelings. At other times it's externally directed to the world outside me. Uh, Commonly it it, it crosses both my internal and external world. So this kind of open, curious, flexible uh, attention is kind of at the heart of mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I'm just kind of reiterating that because I want listeners to bring an attitude of openness and curiosity to the exercises that follow. Be really curious about what happens. Um, You may find that these exercises have no effect on you whatsoever. You may find that you're not able to do them. Um, 
you may find that some of these diffusion techniques give you a tiny weeny bit of diffusion or they give you a massive amount of diffusion. You may even find they actually create fusion. It is possible with any technique and any model of psychology that you can get the opposite result of what you're aiming for. Mm. And sometimes this will happen with diffusion. You'll do a diffusion technique and you'll find it actually has the opposite effect. You end up more fused with the thought that you try and mm -hmm. defuse. Okay, so bring to mind uh, a nasty negative self-judgment and close your eyes or fix on a spot and for the next 15 seconds really buy into this. Believe it as much as you possibly can. Do not challenge or dispute it or push it away. I want you to experience what fusion is like. Now I'll get you to silently sing this thought to the tune happy birthday okay. I am an idiot now I'll get you to uh, silently say this thought to yourself in the voice of a cartoon character a movie star or a sports commentator Try a couple of different voices, actually. Now I'll get you to imagine this thought on a computer screen, just a simple black text on a computer screen, and uh, do not change the words at any point. And what I'll get you to do, first of all, is play around with the font and the color. Try seeing this written in different fonts and different colors. Um, try a few different colors of the rainbow. For example, you may find if you put it into bright red, bold capitals, it actually creates fusion. If you put it into, say, pale pink or pale yellow uh, and smaller letters, that it creates diffusion. So try a few different fonts and colors. Uh, now just put it into the, the sort of stylish graphics you might see on a fancy restaurant menu. And now put it into the colorful, playful graphics you might see on the cover of a children's book. Now just put it back into simple black text and... This time, I'm going to get you to play around with the formatting. Keep the words the same, but alter the formatting. I'll get you, first of all, to space the words out, large gaps between them. Now run them all together so it's all one word, no gaps. Now run the words vertically down the screen, each one underneath each other. Now just put it back again, simple black text. This time I'll get you to animate the words, get the words jumping up and down, spinning in circles, bouncing, stretching, wiggling like caterpillars, just animate them. And just put them back again, simple black text. To finish off, I'll get you to add a karaoke ball. Just have the ball bouncing from word to word. Uh, do several renditions. If you like, you can add happy birthday in again. And that's it at the end of the exercise. So what did you find with those different techniques?
it it became very familiar, you know, like um oh, there's that again. You know, it was it was uh it's just interesting to see that changing it um there's that again, but then at other at other times it was almost like it didn't exist. Mm-hmm. You know, like the actual thing it was saying was not even there. It was just color or shape or or whatever. Right, right. Interesting. What about you, John? Okay. Um I actually had a very similar experience. I'm I'm curious how your I'm curious what types of reactions some of your clients have had to this exercise really. Well, First, let me say you've got to be judicious and sensible about when you do this. Like, uh, you know, if, if, if you do these more wacky, zany diffusion techniques, right, uh, yeah. if, if you do it in, in the right context, it's very powerful and can be a lot of fun. You know, clients will often smile or chuckle or laugh. Um, uh, but if you do it in the wrong context, it would be completely invalidating and you'd really upset someone. Obviously, mm-hmm. you know, if a client comes to see you and their, their kid's just been killed in a car crash, you're not going to go leaping into wacky zany diffusion techniques. Mm-hmm. That would be grossly negligent. Um, so you, you kind of reserve these for the, the place in coaching or therapy where they're appropriate. But provided you kind of pick the context, uh, you know, and you kind of uh, give a rationale for this and you've done uh, and you have a good rapport, uh, then these kinds of wacky zany diffusion techniques are often very, very powerful and uh, often will, uh, people will often be kind of smiling, laughing. Uh, One of my clients uh, had been in, she had had a a very, she was a middle-aged woman and she had a, a very abusive mother growing up. Whenever she um, gained weight, her mother would say, you're fat, you're disgusting, no man will ever be interested in you. And whenever she lost weight, her mother would go, you're a slut, you're a whore, you just want to have sex with men. Oh, man. And this, this woman had uh, grown up hearing her mother's, uh, hearing these thoughts in her head uh, when she when she gained weight, she'd hear one story. When she lost weight, she'd hear the other story. And she'd actually hear it in her mother's voice. Uh, mm. Some people actually hear their thoughts in other people's voices. Um, and she'd been in therapy for years. She'd done the traditional CBT stuff, kind of challenging, disputing these thoughts. She'd done the uh, psychodynamic stuff, analyzed her childhood and knew you know, all about uh, how that had impacted on her. Uh, but the, the point was the thoughts were still showing up and they were still distressing her. And uh, we kind of did this sort of work very early on. It was in the, actually in the second session. Uh, and she's sitting there. At the time she came to see me, she was losing weight. So she was hearing this story about being a slut and a whore. And she was, as she was sharing these thoughts with me, you know, there were tears streaming down her eyes. Mm-hmm. And I, I talked to her about this. And we kind of, we'd done a little bit of uh, diffusion. And I, I suggested that we try this uh, kind of silly voice technique, playing it again in the voice of a cartoon character or movie star or you know sports commentator and the voice that she chose was the voice of brian's mother in the the film life of brian it's um uh, i don't know how well yeah he's not the messiah he's a naughty boy yeah. uh, and uh you know you can uh, in, the, in the exercise we just did i asked people to 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 
to do this in your own head. But if you've got a, an extrovert or willing client, you can actually ask them to do it out aloud. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she started replaying these thoughts in the voice of Brian's mother. You know, I'm a slut. I'm a whore. I just want to have sex with men. That's all I'm interested in. And uh, and her response was exactly the same as yours. She just started cracking up laughing. <laughs> Uh, now, this is a woman who had been in therapy for 20 years, paid a fortune trying to get rid of these thoughts, and now she's laughing at them. So, you know, I kind of said to her, look, it's, uh, what I'd like you to do between now and next session is just practice uh, with this technique. There's going to be times that these thoughts hook you uh, uh, and pull you in, and you, you, they'll catch you before you realize it. That's just a given. But the moment you realize you've been hooked, kind of... See if you can unhook yourself, notice which is the most provocative or hurtful thought that's hooked you and replay it in that voice and just do this as an experiment um, and, uh, and just come back next week and tell me what happened. And, you know, she came back the following week, this massive grin, you know, from ear to ear. I've been in therapy for years. I've spent thousands of dollars. Nothing has had the impact of, of that exercise. And, uh, you know, it, it, it wasn't the end of therapy, but it was a very powerful learning experience for her that, that she could kind of relate to these thoughts in a new way. Mm-hmm. And I, I always say to clients when we do these more wacky zany techniques, if I ask them to practice, I always say, you know, I don't expect you for the rest of your life to sing your thoughts to the tune Happy Birthday or, uh, you know, hear them in the voice of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Um, uh, These are like training wheels on a bicycle. Uh, You know, they're they're, kind of to help you learn these skills, but you don't need the training wheels forever. Mm -hmm. Um, Having said that, it's a useful thing in the toolkit, you know, to to have. uh, I, I actually find the two voices in my practice that people tend to pick most commonly for the silly voices technique. Uh, one is Homer Simpson. Uh, he is by far. Um, and the other, uh, the other one that comes up a, a lot is the, the donkey from Shrek. Um, <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, just out of interest, what voices did you, did you pick in that exercise? Uh, I was imagining myself at a Red Sox game. <laughs> And oh, the, uh, okay. the the sports announcers really got me because I always think they're kind of silly when they're like, and now coming up to the plate. Like, I just think that's hysterical. To yeah. me. So, I love yeah. that. <laughs> John? I, I'm, a, I'm a huge John Cleese fan, actually. Uh, oh, right. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know the argument I'm clinic? Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not an argument. Yes, it is. No, it's not. <laughs> Shut <laughs> your festering <laughs> gob, you t- Your time makes me puke. <laughs> That's it. So, 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 you know, you can have a lot of fun with this, but again, I just want to emphasize it's all about context. You can see how you could easily upset someone by doing this in the wrong context. You've got to be sensible. And it, look, if, if we come back to the example of a client whose child has just been died, that act work that I would be starting with with someone like that is just a lot of self-compassion work. Yeah. Let's just do a lot yeah. of work around compassionate to yourself and so forth mm-hmm. uh, and uh, that, compassion that's for the grief process absolutely yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah you're touching upon that that sort of sense of you know that diffusion work can can sometimes if done at the wrong time can be invalidating but in what in what ways can you know someone who's new to the work maybe stumble into being a little bit invalidating like are there ways that you've seen folks maybe you've worked with like supervised or um, you know, just oh, well, ways people can sort of step in it, you know, when they're doing when they're doing this work. Yeah. Look, when I first discovered ACT, I was so excited with the 
and stuff. And I just, I leaped into it and I, I kind of invalidated quite a few people just by kind of zapping into the diffusion uh, way too early. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's easy to do. It's kind of a fun part of the model, and you can, and because it, it for many people it is so powerful, it's so dramatic. You can get over enthusiastic with it. So uh, you know, I think the thing is, you know, we we talk about the qualities of an act therapist as compassionate, respectful, and often playful. Not always though. There's a time yeah. that playfulness is, is not appropriate, but always compassionate, always respectful. So if you start from creating that compassionate, respectful, validating space and validating people's pain and then you kind of set up a rationale for why you do this and you kind of start with very neutral diffusion techniques bef- way before you get to this wacky zany stuff uh, and then you can uh, and then ask permission uh, uh, and explain that we're going to do some stuff which is a bit more wacky and zany here and the purpose is to help you really see these you know when you when you uh, i mean hopefully the listeners got the experience when you put those thoughts into a different voice or sing them to a song or put them on a computer screen, you really start to see the true nature of thoughts, that they are words, they are pictures, they are sounds. Um, uh, So as long as you kind of put all of that in place, you're you're on fairly safe territory. But if you go leaping into it uh, without a rationale or without building that strong rapport, uh, and validating the client's experience, then that's where you're likely to, to go wrong. I've certainly made mm-hmm. that mistake quite mm-hmm. a few times. So Russ, right. easy to do. so, Russ, I'm dying to ask you a question that's kind of specific, but I, I, I want to wait until you've kind of given, you feel like you've given, you know, the general overview of diffusion. Do you feel like you've you've reached there? Or are there a few other points you wanted to make before, um, before I asked you a kind of specific question? I, look, the 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 only there's just kind of one more point where we we kind of touched on it a while back and I got sidetracked. So I was talking about how I came to act through, but but I did traditional CBT first, and this kind of big distinction uh, that we've touched on that in traditional CBT the content of the thought is the problem, and the thought needs to be changed. Uh, whereas in act, it's not the content of the thought; it's the the context in a context of fusion the thought is problematic, but if in a context of diffusion and acceptance and contact with the present moment, more commonly what we call mindfulness, that very same thought has minimal impact and influence over me. It still has exactly the same content. I'm a loser. I'm an idiot. Life sucks. Mm -hmm. But it no longer kind of holds me back from being what I want to be or doing what I want to do. So whereas I started to give the example that in my CBT days, I'd often try to challenge a the very common core belief that I'm unworthy. Um, mm-hmm. And it was hard work and didn't really lead to lasting results for most people. And certainly, certainly, um, uh, whereas now, working from an act perspective, I, I would kind of take the opposite approach with a client. I'd say, so what, you're, you're 40 years old now. Uh, how long has your mind been telling you uh, the I'm unworthy story? What's the youngest you can remember that showing up? Oh, when you were five years old, did did your mind come up with that story by itself, or did something happen at age five? Oh, that was when your father left home, and so you thought that was your mind told you that was you. So your mind's been telling you the unworthy story for thirty five years, and you've been trying to get rid of this story in a lot of different ways, haven't you? You've tried challenging it, you've tried positive affirmations, you've tried pushing it out of your head, distracting yourself from it, you've tried 
suppressing it with drugs, alcohol. You've tried kind of being really, really hard on yourself so that you can be really worthy. And we've only just scratched the surface of all the different ways you've tried trying to get rid of these thoughts. And they're still showing up, right? Uh, uh, what do you think the chances are that I'm going to be able to say something to you in this session that's going to stop your mind from telling you that story it's already been telling you every day for the last 35 years? How, how realistic do you think that is? Right. You know, let's just imagine I was the world's greatest barrister, solicitor, lawyer, and I could come up with all the evidence to prove that story false. I could kind of dredge it up. Do you think, how long do you think that would convince your mind for before it started telling you that story again? Right. Uh, uh, or it would come up with a, another variation of the story. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to stop your mind telling you that story because my mind tells me very similar stories about me. And, uh, you know, and then I'll say something, you know, like I just gave a workshop to 100 psychologists uh, last week and every single one of them had multiple versions of this story that you're telling me. Everybody I know has this story or something similar. I don't know how to get rid of it, but would you be interested in learning a new way of responding to it so that next time your mind starts telling you that story, you don't have to get held back by it or pushed around by it? Does that interest you? Mm -hmm. uh, and this kind of sidesteps because any coach or therapist that starts doing this work, you'll sooner or later you're going to come up against the process from the client. But it's true. But it's true. Uh, like I, I remember one. One of my clients is a, a morbidly obese gentleman uh, that, you know, had all of these thoughts about being fat and overweight. And he said, but it's true. And he pulled up his shirt and kind of showed me these kind of huge mounds of, of fat hanging over his abdomen. Uh, and, and so what I said to him is, look, you know, in this room, we are not interested in whether your thoughts are true or false. What we're interested in is when you hold on tightly to them, when you get all caught up in them, when you let them dictate what you do with your arms and your legs, does that help you to be the person you want to be? Does that help you to do the things you're wanting to do? When your mind starts telling you, kind of uh, judging your body and judging your weight and you get all caught up in those thoughts, does it actually motivate you to, to kind of eat well or go to the gym or do the things that are important? Or does it actually just make you feel more depressed and more helpless? You know, and mm -hmm. so right back to mm -hmm. this core act concept of workability. Yep. It's kind of... It's a very, very powerful way of working. Uh, you know, probably one of the most powerful diffusion techniques is really just to say to a client, okay, so I want you to notice what your mind is saying to you now, and I just want you to check with yourself. If you hold on tightly to those thoughts and let them dictate what you do from here, will that work to give you the life you want, or will mm -hmm. that hinder you? Mm -hmm. You instantly got diffusion there. Mm-hmm. Yep. One thing, John, I do want to come to your question, but one thing I wanted to ask you, Russ, is um, something we've, we were trying to touch on in each of these podcasts around these processes and the model is um, how clinicians can respond to clients from, that, from the place of that process. So, mm -hmm. you know, how may, you know, some of what you just said touches upon this for sure, but, um, you know, are there ways that clinicians can respond to clients from a diffused place without doing a big diffusion intervention, especially early on, perhaps, in therapy? Yeah, well, I, I think um, diffusion uh, kind of, um, it, it starts from the first minute of the first session. We, we try to set the mind up as if it's a, a separate personality in the room. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, um, so asking these sorts of questions, uh, 
if I can just plug my textbook Act Made Simple, there's kind of a, a lot of uh, these sorts of questions in there um, that that, that uh, just asking people. So when your mind wants to beat you up about this or when your mind wants to hold you back or when your mind wants to make this situation even worse than it already is, what kind of things does it say to you? Mm -hmm. um, uh, checking in periodically, again, even from the first few minutes of the first session, asking uh, your client, what's your mind saying to you right now? Or, uh, you know, if your client has just revealed something and you can see that they're very emotionally upset, I can see it looks like you're upset. Can I just ask what your mind is telling you about about this process or or what you've just shared with me? Um, you know, uh, and so you immediately from the word go, you're asking the client to notice their mind. You're talking about the mind uh, as, as almost like it's a separate person in the room. Um, uh, act also is in favor of self-disclosure from the coach or therapist. Now, if you, if you read the literature, you'll certainly find stuff warning you about the dangers of self-disclosure, <laughs> but you'll also find lots of stuff talking about the enormous therapeutic benefits of self-disclosure. Mm -hmm. So in act, we're in favor of self-disclosure, judicious self-disclosure, you know, when it's going to kind of validate the client's experience, normalize their experience or model the model for the client. Um, so it's not like you think you've got sexual problems, listen to mine. It's not yeah, that. Right, uh, right. It, um, but it, it's kind of, uh, if I get thrown by something the client says, then I will say something like, oh, okay, I, I have to admit, I, I'm feeling a bit thrown by that. My mind is whirling around in circles. It's, come, it's trying to come up with something clever to say. It's not coming up with anything. And now my mind's saying, you're going to think I'm a, a lousy therapist because I haven't got anything clever to say. So I've kind of, done self-disclosure there and a modeled diffusion too and mm -hmm. it kind of really helps me um to diffuse mm -hmm. that's good i'm not sure that's if i've answered your question or not no i think that's 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 kind of what i was asking about is you know um ways to kind of model the process without without doing um you know an eyes closed exercise or without doing some of these more physical kinds of exercises that you've talked about you know just ways to sort of respond to clients from that place of oh so you're noticing your mind saying this um etc like that's that's a way to bring diffusion into the room too i think that's a useful additional strategy um to, to bring sort of diffusion throughout the process of therapy yeah well you know look uh I mean, I certainly do do the, those eyes closed exercises, but I don't do them with all clients. Um, mm. You know, the, the kind of leaves on a stream is a very popular one where you mm -hmm. close your eyes, you imagine a, a stream, there are leaves on the surface and you just put your thoughts onto the leaves and let them float on by. And that's a that's a lovely kind of uh, training exercise, but that that's much more formal. Mm -hmm. uh, you yep. know, that actually involves in a sense kind of, okay, let's stop, let's do an exercise. But um, But just... If you can model uh, and instigate the convention of what's your mind saying to you and uh, and so uh, how caught up are you in that thought right now? You see, if you've done this little uh, intervention with the hands that we've done mm. uh, a couple of times, right. you can now ask the client to use that as a check-in. Your client says, oh, God, you know, I'm so pathetic. Then you can say, can you just show me with your hands how fused you are with your thought? And you... You, you model it, you, kinda, you, you put your hands over your own eyes, you say, so if this is totally fused or totally caught up in it, and then you, you put your own hands on your lap and you go, and this is kind of totally defused, can you just kind of show me with your hands kind of how caught up are you in that thought right now? So you start getting the client to use this as a, a mm. gauge or a judgment. Have I explained that adequately? Yeah, um, sure, I think that's sure. really nice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah. 
Um, and so you can um, uh, actually one of the most powerful diffusion techniques is simply writing thoughts down. So, uh, you know, um, just get a sheet of paper. You can write them down or you can get the client to write them down and then just have a look at the paper. Uh, these are all the thoughts that your mind is kind of telling you right now. Then a, a nice little exercise that you can, there's many different ways you can work with this, but a really nice one is you, you kind of get the client to sit with a sheet of paper on their lap with all of those kind of hurtful, provocative, negative, anxiety-provoking thoughts. They've got it on their lap. Mm-hmm. And then you say, what I, I'm going to get you to do is I want you to consider a vitality scale of 0 to 10. So 10 is maximum vitality. I am fully alive. I am embracing this moment of life, uh, living it to the full. Whether it's a moment of pain or a moment of joy, I'm squeezing every last drop of life out of this moment. I'm fully alive. Whereas zero is all the vitality sucked out of me. I'm a walking corpse. I'm a zombie. and just going through the motions. And what I'd like you to do is tilt your head down and just look at that sheet of paper. Look at all those thoughts. Get totally absorbed in them. Just buy into them. Let them kind of suck you in. Just do that for a few seconds. And then after a few seconds, I say, now just rate your vitality zero to ten. And most people will kind of give you a pretty low score, a zero or a one or a wow. two or a three. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And then, And then the next step is I say, okay, now I want you to just tilt your head upwards, tilt your head upright, and look around the room. Notice what you can see. Notice what you can hear. Uh, Come back. Engage with me. There's you and me here in the room. Come back. Kind of notice me in the chair. Notice these designer-labeled clothes I'm wearing. Notice this uh, amazing hairstyle here that I've had done just for today. You know, come back. (laughs) For some reason, most people laugh at that. I don't know why that would be. But, um, you know... Uh, and kind of what's your what's your vitality level right now? And and most people will kind of there'll be a, a raise of two or three or four notches uh, in their score. And then you can say, okay, so that just happened in a split second just by engaging in the world. And notice that the thoughts are still there; they're still with you. They haven't changed in one way, but you're responding to them differently. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a very nice little exercise that. Man, Russ, that is so powerful. Mm-hmm. I, I had one client who was uh, had one client who was very depressed, and I did that particular exercise with him. When he was all caught down, up in the thoughts, he kind of and I said, "You know, what's your vitality?" He said, zero point five. I said, "Okay." Then I said, "Can I you come back and engage with me? Engage in the room. What is it now?" He said, "It's a one." I said, "Isn't that amazing? Your vitality just doubled." usually it's a lot more dramatic than that you know uh, even if somebody only reported a a shift of 0.1 i'd still get excited about that because Mm -hmm. that that happened in a split second Mm -hmm. and if you're getting a little bit more life just from engaging in the present moment that's Mm -hmm. useful Yep, sort of broadening that attention to be more flexible and attending to what's sort of what else is out there um you know, the thoughts are still once there, but there's other things. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. The yeah. nice thing is, when, I mean, once you've got thoughts on a piece of paper, there's so many things you can do with them. Like mm-hmm. You can ask the client, you can create an obstacle course in your room and ask the client to try and navigate it while they're holding onto the sheet of paper, reading their thoughts, and, uh, and then kind of get them to tuck the sheet of paper under their arm and navigate the obstacle course again. And, of course, it's much easier. And, again, you're teasing the same message out. The thoughts haven't changed, but you're holding them differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's all sorts of things you can do with it. Um, uh, yeah. So what about John? I'm burning up with curiosity about John's question. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, Jen, you're you're going to 
probably this may question may sound familiar. I may have brought up parts of it in other episodes. I'm not totally sure because I think about this every day, so it all kind of is a big blur. But, but Russ, my my um, my thesis is on act for scrupulosity or religious or moral based OCD. And wow, yeah. What and, did you call it? scrupulosity? What mm-hmm. what's that? This I've never heard of that word scrupulosity. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. one of the main subtypes of obsessive compulsive disorder. It's right. it's where your obsessions and or compulsions have a moral or religious sort of nature. So right. obsessive confessing to an ecclesiastical leader, excessive praying, excessive um, rumination about guilt or remorse, um, even confessing for things that you never actually did, but you worry that you may have done them. These are all the types of things that uh, are involved in scrupulosity. It's uh, right. it's actually quite a fun thing to treat. And I just finished uh, collecting my post data, and all of the participants actually um, had what I consider to be clinically significant uh, reductions in um, both compulsions and avoidances. But that's beside Woo-hoo! the that's beside the point. Oh, um, fantastic! Well yeah. But it it brings up sort of something that I've really been grappling with, and Mike Tuig, if he ever ends up listening to these podcasts, is going to be so tired to be two years into me asking this same question that I'm about to ask you. But so far, I have not had it resolved. So, Russ, I'm looking for you to to do what no one's been able to do. Can you do it? No pressure. If I I built it up enough? Okay, here's the deal. Suppose My mind's saying, oh, no, I've got to come up with a good answer now. Everyone's listening. Can we edit this out of the interview? Are you fused with uh, my expectations? I am. Hold my expectations lightly. Okay, so so Russ, imagine you have a, a client, a male client who is devoutly religious. They, they're Christian. They love Jesus. They love the Bible. They've had a fantastic church experience growing up. Uh, you know, they love the Lord. They sing in the choir. And religion is everything to them. Okay? Yeah. Yeah. And let's say that they are they are a member of a particularly conservative or orthodox or fundamentalist sect of Christianity that also happens to teach that homosexuality is a perversion, is evil, is uh, condemned by God, and is dirty. Now let's add to that the fact that they are themselves gay or bisexual. Okay? So you've mm-hmm. got this situation where they not only not only do they have values that tell them uh, that their inclinations and maybe even their behavior, if they're acting on their inclinations, are evil, wicked, bad, perverse. Um, but but they may even be fused with those, and and yet from what we understand about you know the the, the literature on homosexuality the you know the APA in the United States would say it ain't going away for many people and attempts to make it go away um, are, are likely going to do even more psychological harm so here mm. we've got both values and fusion around religious beliefs or doctrine so we've got basically value supported fusion around uh, core religious doctrine, theological beliefs. And then you've got an orientation that 
is not really resolvable. And so, you know, I've I've actually held at least one focus group where where we have a group of these people sitting in the room. Not a focus group, a a group sort of a group therapy like experience over six sessions where we're encouraging them to, you know, understand and learn act principles and apply that to the situation that I just described. It seems like we've put them on the rack. I mean, if we're going to talk about, you know, the, the, the Monty Python, let's talk about the Spanish Inquisition. We've now put them on the rack where they're being pulled between two things that someone would argue are irreconcilable. And mm. I don't know how not to talk about content in that situation and see if there's a way to help loosen them around their their interpretations of their doctrinal or theological positions such that they can not be pulled apart on the rack. And so I'm well, just wondering if there's sometimes a place for discussing content. And I'm wondering if there's sometimes huh. a need to discuss content and even challenge cognitions if they're pulling someone apart. I, I, well, let me, let me answer that in at least three different ways. Firstly, just a, a, a general comment. There's definitely a time to discuss content, uh, I, I mean, uh, uh, in all sorts of different ways. In, a, um, in an act-consistent way? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. It's, yeah. Absolutely. There's lo- lots of kind of act stuff that is about discussing content. Um, uh, you know, uh, for example, there's lots of psychoeducation in act, and that psychoeducation is all kind of discussing content. Uh, and you know, if if people are, are kind of holding on to uh, kind of misleading beliefs about, let's say, antidepressants, for example, then uh, I will often have a discussion with them about the uh, information they've been fed through the media and the information that we know from a scientific perspective and the differences between this information. Uh, So, you know, that's just one example. So, you know, I mean, we want to be flexible. There's definitely a time and a place for discussing content. Um, If... uh, the the second way I want to answer that question is with a couple of personal stories. Um, uh, both revolve around young men that I worked with. They were both young men in their 20s. They were both Catholic and they were both homosexual. Um, and uh, they were both struggling with their homosexuality because of the teachings of uh, the Catholic Church, which is against that. Now, One of these, I'll just share my personal reaction was that what I wanted for these guys was to leave the church and find, uh, (laughs) you know, (laughs) find a branch of uh, Christianity that was accepting and welcome. There's lots of Christian groups that accept homosexuality. Uh, That's what I wanted. And luckily for one of these guys, that's the way it turned out. Ultimately, he kind of decided that he was a Christian, the Christian faith was important, but there were many different ways of following that faith, and he wanted, uh, he kind of was in touch with Jesus, teaches about accepting of differences and so forth, and he wanted to find a a branch that could accept him, and so he left and found another denomination. Now, that was really uh, great. I was very pleased with that. The other guy was quite clear that he wanted to stay in the Catholic faith, that he was unwilling to leave 
And that was much harder for me. And I had to do a lot of acceptance uh, of, of my own reaction. What we basically worked on was uh, the fact that um, if he wanted to follow the Catholic faith, then he couldn't really act on his homosexuality. Uh, and so the, the, we worked on having him learn how to accept his thoughts and feelings and urges and cravings without actually acting on them. And we used the example uh, that Jesus was tempted. You know, the Bible talks about the temptation of Jesus. It doesn't say that Jesus had no temptation whatsoever. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, you can be tempted to engage in homosexual behavior. Um, you know, it's, it's ridiculous to expect that you won't have the temptation uh, if Jesus himself had temptation. So we kind of worked around accepting those thoughts and feelings without acting on them. And I wasn't very happy with that, but I just kind of thought hopefully at some point later in life, this guy might actually shift to a more accepting uh, branch of Christianity. So um, those are the kind of two different ways that uh, I would tackle that issue. And and do you think that's sustainable? What do you mean? Do you think that? Do you think that? So I'm sitting with these guys in the room, and I'm saying, uh, accept your urges and thoughts, and diffuse from them, and you don't have to act on them just because you feel that way, and you can, you know, if your values say be religious, like, is there ever a concern that you might be setting them up for? disappointment or even something more catastrophic where they they think okay i can do this i can just accept it i can just diffuse oh. and what you're well, ended uh, up well, doing is oh go yeah. ahead yeah yeah sorry uh, look absolutely uh, this sort of work the first place that i would begin with is, is just enormous self-compassion mm-hmm. that's where i would start yeah. with, with these folks just you're in a really difficult situation it's painful it's hard you're struggling with all of this stuff lots and lots of work around self-compassion that would be my starting point when we uh you know got to that point with with the second scenario where the guy was going to kind of accept his urges without acting on them we had a talk about the fact that he's a human being he's not perfect and uh you know i don't know uh, many human beings that have eliminated all of the habits they want to eliminate and that there's actually a very good chance that right. from time to time you will act on these urges and what do you want to do when that happens uh, you can uh, beat yourself up about it but if beating yourself up was a good way to change behavior you'd be perfect by now right <laughs> uh, and and then, you know, I don't know how to stop your mind beating you up. That's what it will do. But uh, you can see it doesn't help. Uh, would you like to, you know, rather than beat yourself up is practice self-compassion and self-acceptance. I mean, this is kind of a, a big teaching in Christianity about kind of self-compassion, too. Uh, you know, I, I presume, uh, you know, I'm. I'm not actually a religious person, uh, but you know I, I've I've read the Bible and and I find it interesting, uh, and uh, so you know I, I assume that there's um, that the reason that the New Testament tells stories about Jesus losing his temper and you know kind of kicking over the, the 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 tables of the money changers and crying out God why hast thou forsaken me and so forth is to kind of uh, there's a message there that even even Jesus at times got pushed around by his thoughts and feelings and acted in ways that were inconsistent with his own message. Mm-hmm. 
so you know why is the Bible put those stories in there uh, isn't it a you know like they're not saying Jesus was perfect uh, and so is it fair for your mind to insist that you be perfect right uh, now and then I will kind of pre I don't think that your mind's going to agree with me uh, on this I don't think we're going to get to this through logical debate the choice you have is uh, are you going to practice self-compassion or are you going to fuse with all of this kind of beating yourself up, which is going to help you in the long run to, to be mm-hmm. a better Christian, which mm-hmm. is going to help kind of live a fuller life. Right, right. You know, and if carrying that sort of um, beating, beating yourself up, sort of fusion, you've got your hands in front of your face, like how can you, how can you fully engage in the kinds of activities you want to do as a Christian? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll just I'll just add um, one of the one of the interesting surprises. It, it was painful for me to treat these people with scrupulosity because it, it would be easy to assume that it was religion was the cause of their OCD and to want to be angry and hostile towards their religion. But most of the scrupulosity literature says that OCD attacks the thing you care most about, and if mm. if the religion weren't there. They would be attacking your love for your children, or, or your health, or your safety, or or something else that the OCD would. And so, one of the things. So, even though I had the inclination to want to be angry at the religion in these cases, most of these people came to therapy having disengaged with their religion because they were feeling so much guilt and because they were feeling so much shame. And so there was this irony always present that. Um, that even though their desire was to be righteous, the way that their interpretations and practices had played out, that they were actually driving them away from church attendance, away from ritualistic observance, away from praying, away from the things that made them feel spiritual. And so even though I was feeling angry at their religion, I would say that three to four out of the five that I treated actually increased their religious observance and participation as a result of of, of act, hmm. yeah, and, well, and that it, wasn't I mean, where it, I was necessarily is, pushing. Yeah. The, you know, no, no, no. I mean, it's it's not the religion; it's it's the way that the messages are taken out of it, and uh, and you could argue distorted. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Steve Hayes is the first to say there is nothing in act that you will not find in all the world's great religions. You know, uh, right. a, a workshop I did a couple of years ago, we had a. A priest. I'm not sure what denomination he was. Uh, you know, he had, he had the dog collar on and all that. And day day two of the workshop, he said to the entire group, "I think Jesus was an act therapist." Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, it's kind of all of these messages are there. I mean, there's a, a, a presumably a reason why the Bible records Jesus hanging around with prostitutes and kind of money changers and uh, sorry, not money changers. Um, uh, but kind of, uh, you know, Publicans the, the um, and sinners and lepers yeah, and yeah, the, the disenfranchised, you know, yeah, he's kind of, he's, um, he's kind of, uh, he's being present and open and loving and kind towards these people. He's not throwing stones at them. Mm-hmm. You know, he's kind of the message, you know, let you who is without sin, you know, throw the first stone and so forth. There's lots of messages there about kind of, uh, being kind of compassionate. And, and if you can, this is kind of where it's helpful. You know, the danger is you can get bogged down in, in, in theological debates. I don't like to do it very much, but mm-hmm. kind of, uh, you know, if you know a little bit about it, you can tease these messages out. 
and then talk about, you know, you can kind of be self-compassionate and, and loving and kind to yourself, whatever you ultimately decide to do. And that's mm-hmm. and there and that's and I guess I guess you have to be careful, but I guess in some instances that is talking about content again, in, in a way where you have to be careful not to encourage more refusion, right? Yeah, I, I mean, there's lots of talking about content in X. You know, another, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of, I mean, you know, every Act workshop, Act textbook, there's plenty of stuff of content. It's just we kind of want to do this dance. We want to, uh, we want to be careful because it's uh, the the normal social convention and, and the one upon which most models of therapy are based is that we just get into long conversations at content level, mm-hmm. and, and uh, uh, we want to kind of de-emphasize that there's, there's certainly uh, a room for it but much less so than in other models and we want to have a a lot more kind of be focusing on the the context on the the processes rather than on the content of the thoughts mm-hmm. yeah we're not we're not we're not my nazis in it we're not kind of you know <laughs> always uh, <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, there's, there's, there really is lots of room for those discussions at a content level, uh, and and that includes sharing inspiring stories. Uh, uh, you know, like I often talk to people about inspiring historical figures and so forth. Uh, Nelson Mandela, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that, that's a content level intervention. But uh, those, are, you know, uh, or, or you know, some act therapists are fond of reading poetry in their sessions, inspiring poetry and so forth. Those are content level interventions, but that content is very powerful in in helping facilitate act processes. Got it. Okay, you you guys did it. It's all fixed. I'm I'm solved. My problem. <laughs> Congratulations. Oh wow! <laughs> nice. <laughs> you. No, I'm serious. That, that was very helpful. No, I'm serious. That was very helpful. Thank you. Well, wow. So have we have we covered the process? Are there things that you have dangling, Russ? Are there things that you are burning to share with our listeners? Or uh, look, I think we've uh, we've covered it uh, to a large degree. Yeah. And, um, yeah. I mean, you know, there's a lot more. Um, uh, uh, it's probably worth just saying that kind of basically. Uh, Diffusion happens when you engage in the present moment, when you really engage in what you're doing uh, through the five senses, notice what you can see and hear and touch and taste and smell and really get present. Diffusion happens automatically. You start kind of separating and detaching from your thoughts to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. But- Another example of how um, I haven't, we haven't pointed it out directly, but how this process really relates to the whole model. We, we've talked a lot about values and committed action and acceptance and mindfulness. It really is very much tied to the rest of this the model mm-hmm. yeah it's, it's all kind of interlinked really isn't mm-hmm. it and uh, yeah. you know it's often uh, you know we talk about these six processes um uh, and train them separately in textbooks and uh, workshops but they're like six facets of a diamond the, the diamond is psychological flexibility and they all interlink and interconnect uh, I, I just remembered actually there is one final point. We talked way back about the chessboard metaphor. Mm, mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, and it was kind of, uh, I presume you'll come back to this when you look at self as context, mm-hmm. but we can look at it in a slightly different way here. Um, the, the chessboard metaphor is kind of, talks about your, the red pieces are like all your negative thoughts and the, the white pieces are like all your positive thoughts. And we go through life 
uh, in this battle, trying to win this chess game, trying to get all the white pieces across the board and wipe off all the red pieces. But the problem is there's an infinite number of white and red pieces. This is a, a battle that can never be won. It's never over. Right. Um, and furthermore, the, the problem is the white pieces attract red pieces. So you move the white piece across, uh, I'm lovable. It attracts the red piece. Well, no, you're not. What about the time you did this? You move the white piece across, I accept myself. It attracts the red piece. No, you don't. What about your thighs? You know, and, and so... <laughs> You end up in this kind of battle between the white and red pieces. And what about if we could learn to take place of the board? The board is not involved in that battle. It's in intimate contact with all the pieces, but it's also kind of separate from the pieces. It's holding the pieces without getting caught up. And this is another way of looking at diffusion. We can kind of see all of these different thoughts showing up, but we step out of the battle. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's that can great. be a really powerful one. Mm-hmm. Chess board. Be the board. Well, yep. well, that has been a brilliant, I think, two hours. Yeah, yeah thanks huh? for hanging in there. <laughs> you're, a marathon, yeah, you're, you're a marathon man, Russ. <laughs> great film, that. <laughs> so, you're, uh, so you're in Australia, is that right? I am, yes. So... Uh... Yes, I'm. Uh, uh, well, I'm originally from England, but I've been in Australia for over 20 years now. So I, I think of myself as Australian these days. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So if people want to, you know, hire you or get a hold of you or buy a book or whatever, we've we've plugged a little bit. Is there anything you want to, you know, is there a website or is there anything you want to kind of let people know how they can either get in touch with you or, or um, learn a bit more about yeah, yeah. your approach? Okay. Yeah. Well, look the the website. For the general public is uh, www.thehappinesstrap.com. Uh, so that's for the general public, and that covers the happiness trap and uh, and other self help books that I've written. Um, for professionals, um, you want my Act Mindfully website. That's www.actmindfully.com.au. Uh, Act mindfully. That's act a c t mind m i n d f and then fully f u w l l. So act mindfully or one word dot com dot au. That's the professionals website. All right. Um, and um, yeah, I think uh, uh, you'll you'll find out the information you're looking for there. Um, I think probably. Excellent. Yeah. All right. Great. Well, well we can't. Uh, Russ, we can't thank you enough for uh, giving us your time and for teaching us about diffusion. Um, we may not be letting you off the hook. We may want to have you back at some point because this was just too good. So hopefully we might be able to twist your arm to come back if we need you. Yeah, no, delighted to. Love to come back. All right. Well, um, well, thanks again. Uh, Jen, as always, you're just the perfect co-host. I think we make a good team, John. <laughs> Me too. Uh, I would second that. Yeah, you do. You're a good team. That was good. It was a, you're good interviewers. You, you made me feel very relaxed, except for when John asked me that question. <laughs> <laughs> ah, but you hit it. You nailed it. You hit it out of the park. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks. Well, the, the website, right. for those of you who are listening, the website to w- check w- out the podcast. W- oh, go ahead. Dot, yeah, sorry. www.contextualpsychology.org slash podcast and by the time this podcast comes out 
crossing our fingers, we will have an iTunes subscribable podcast. So <laughs> that will be, uh, we're working on that. We had a tech glitch, but we will get that up and running. So by the time this comes out, it may very well be there. So check us out on iTunes. Also, there's a Facebook page if you just search for Acting Context. And if you like us, if we get enough likes, we can get our own URL that says Acting Context. So, Yay. Uh, so that'll be great. So tell your friends. Tell so your, tell your friends tell about your, us. Tell, tell your, your parents. Mom, your, yeah, tell exactly. Tell your dad. <laughs> tell your girlfriend, boyfriend, gra- everyone, grandma. Tell them all. Your yep. priest. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right, Russ and Jen, thanks right. so much. Thanks to the listeners, and we'll talk to you guys all again soon. Thanks all right, listening. take care. Okay, thank you. The Act in Context podcast is a production of the Association for Contextual Behavioral Science. Please check us out at contextualpsychology.org slash podcast. Music was brought to you by Armory. <laughs>